Hey, it's Chris Garlock with our Pod Extra edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, excerpts from the weekly meeting of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. We pull wire with the strength of an elephant tugging out tree trunks. We climb ladders with the agility of a mountain lion scaling a peak. And we read blueprints with the wisdom and inquisitiveness of an owl. We use our extraordinary powers to build and light up the city. We are superheroes. We're wire women. That's Timothy Sheard. He's the editor of Hardball Press, which just released Wire Women Lighting It Up by Professor Sharon Szymanski, a vivid portrait of courageous, creative women working in a non-traditional occupation. 725 people in Bismarck, North Dakota at the Bobcat factory. Um, That's a place that's kind of like off the beaten path. Um, particularly if you're thinking about places where you might expect people to be unionizing. Um, 238 workers at the Red Wing Shoe Company in Potosi, uh, Missouri. Uh, 170 workers at the ConAgra Brands in St. Elmo, Illinois, where they make uh, salad dressings uh, and log cabin pancake syrup. And then, and this one was kind of unusual, 18 zookeepers at the Rolling Hills Zoo in Salina, Kansas. And that's Christopher Martin, professor of digital journalism in the Department of Communication Studies at the University of Northern Iowa. His article, Workers at Big Brands Like Starbucks Aren't the Only Ones Unionizing, recently appeared in Jacobin. Harold Phillips, host of the Working to Live in Southwest Washington podcast, hosted this week's meeting. Here's Harold. Timothy, uh... Why don't you go ahead and uh, tell us a little bit about Hardball Press and this new book that's coming out. Yeah, thank you so much, Harold. Hardball and Little Heroes is a labor and social justice imprint. So our goal uh, is to mentor and to publish working class writers who write stories about their work life and their personal life, their social life and their political life, because there's a lot of politics involved in our lives every day. Uh, In addition to writing stories, we also have memoirs and histories. Uh, We have creative nonfiction, and we also have tools for organizing. We have organizing tools that were originally published by Union Communication Services, old UCS, back in the day, and I've inherited them and updated them. So we have training manuals for young organizers, young union organizers and labor leaders And we've actually had a donation campaign. We donated 200 books and a thousand union pamphlets to the Starbucks group up in Boston. And they're giving them out. They're giving them out all around the country because these young Starbucks leaders uh, need training, need training. So we have um, Mike Maurer's book, The Union Members Complete Guide, which is a great resource. And we have Bill Barry's I Just Got Elected, which is also for a union officer. we're trying to reach out to Chipotle and, uh, you know, all these upstart uh, fledgling unions and try and give them some of the tools they need to help them, you know, help them organize. That's fantastic. And I'm sure that's going to be a tremendous resource. Um, I see Tula has mentioned in the chat that she was happy to donate to your Starbucks campaign. So uh, you definitely have a lot of supporters here. Um, so I understand that you have a new book that you're putting out. Is that right? I do. I have a lovely children's book called Wire Women, Lighting It Up. 
what it's like to be a female union electrician. Now, this book came out of the Harry Van Arsdale School of Labor Studies in New York City, and they partnered with IBEW Local 3 in an apprenticeship program for electricians. So last year in their program, they had seven women training to become electricians. It's quite a rigorous training program. There's a lot of science, a lot of electrical science and physics and um, you know, it's a really complicated program. And uh, one of the women asked the teacher, Professor uh, Szymanski, uh, Professor Szymanski, why aren't there more women electricians? And Professor Szymanski said, well, a lot of young women and girls don't know that these trades are open to them, that they qualify for apprenticeship programs and that they can earn really good wages um, work in a union job with union protection and union rights. And they come out of this program with no uh, student debt, which is really what college should be. It should be free to, to students. And so the student said, well, let's write a children's book. You know, let's write a children's book. Let's get it illustrated. And let's get it out to the young girls and young women so that they know that this is available. Um, so they wrote this story, and uh, Professor Zemanski served as editor. There's a lot of humor in it, and um, a lot of empathy and, and warmth, where they describe some of the jobs that they've done, working on the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree, for example, at Christmas, and and working in the subway system, keeping the trains running, and you know a lot of the challenges they face, and and the satisfaction they feel in, in, in learning this trade and lighting up a city, lighting up, literally lighting up. So the book expresses their, their joy, their pride, um, their success in, in this field. And my hope is that programs like yours, shows like yours, Union City and others will let uh, the public know about them. Because if uh, parents uh, and women will take these books to their local library and to their local public school and show them the book. And uh, then they can make it available to more children, more parents and spread the word and really get this known that this pro these programs are available to young women. That's fantastic. And what a great resource, like you say, for, for young women to know that that option is open for them. Judy Ansel. Um, could you so, uh, identify your show for the listeners? Heartland Labor Forum. Um, so <laughs> Tim, Tim and um, Ms. Zizmanski are both on the Heartland Labor Forum this week uh, talking about this book. And they're being interviewed by one of our volunteers who is a journeyman, woman journeyman electrician, Ariana Blackman. And so I'm, I haven't heard the uh, tape yet. I know it's already pre-recorded, but. I'm looking forward to it, Tim. And you should also mention the latest coup with the Bill Fletcher book. Yes. Well, he he, um, he sold the movie rights to his first novel, uh, The Man Who Fell from the Sky. And, you know, only Bill Fletcher, right, would, like, would write a, a crime novel, a mystery novel that in, engages in colonialism and racism and, and capitalist exploitation and all all the things that we're concerned about and wrap them into a cunning story. Only Bill Fletcher, right? Anyway, he did sell uh, the movie rights to a production company. 
that's not a guarantee the movie will be made, but they, they have a little over a year, year and a half uh, to shop it around and to, and to um, uh, gather the finance, the financing, which is the obstacle financing and cast it and um, make it a movie. So we're, we have our fingers crossed and uh, we're hoping for the best. And right now I'm editing uh, his second novel, which is a, a, a follow-up to his first one. This is The Man Who Changed Color. And it has the same, the same protagonist, uh, a Cape Verdean American journalist on Cape Cod, and he's investigating some nasty business going on uh, um, in the uh, shipbuilding industry and in the shipyard uh, up in up in New England. So hopefully we'll have that book out early next year. That is great. And uh, I can tell you from my own experience in the film industry, I know exactly what that development hell, as they call it, is like. So, yeah, that clock is ticking, but it's really exciting that we could see a big screen version of, uh, of that book because it's, it's a tremendous book. Yes, Chris Garlock. I just wanted to get Tim to uh, read, if he would. Uh, there's a wonderful section of the introduction, Tim. I don't have page numbers in the version you sent me, but it uh, it's the part uh, that starts with "We pull wire with the strength." Could you could you read that section? I just think sure. it, it gives a really wonderful uh, feel for this for your your Wire Woman book. Sure, sure. So we pull wire with the strength of an elephant tugging out tree trunks. We climb ladders with the agility of a mountain lion scaling a peak, and we read blueprints with the wisdom and inquisitiveness of an owl. We use our extraordinary powers to build and light up the city. We are superheroes. We're wire women. It's wonderful. That is so cool. Oh my gosh, I'm I'm so excited to see young girls and women reading this book and uh, and seeing that this is this is an option for them to go out into the world. Thank you so much for sharing it, Timothy. We've also got Chris Martin with us uh, from the University of Northern mm -hmm. Iowa. Thank you so much for joining us, Chris. Um, as I mentioned to Tim before you got on, this is the weekly meeting of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. This is where network members get together and talk about what's happening in their shows and in their areas. And we also get to meet interesting people like you. So uh, what's going on in your world? It's nice to be here with you. Um, you know, I uh, wrote a piece recently for uh, Jacobin Magazine um, talking about uh, organizing and it was a little bit of a it's it's more of a uh, I guess a critique of, of some of the mainstream coverage particularly the New York Times um, so uh, and on one hand I'm not complaining about this at all like it's great there there's lots of organizing happening at uh, Starbucks at Amazon at REI Chipotle uh, Trader Joe's and places like that um, but on the other hand what I was what I my complaint was that they're they're missing out on other organizing they're kind of going for the things that are familiar to their to their readers, um, you know, people know these places. There, um, I talk about a little bit in the, in the article about how these are like very famous uh, uh, locations uh, and companies uh, in America. So they're the um, and they're the things that uh, Starbucks or rather New York Times readers would be interested in, maybe as they're <laughs> drinking their Starbucks coffee. Uh, but but there's other things happening. If you look in the um, you know other sectors, particularly, I was. Um, looking at, as an example, the healthcare sector. I mean, there's an amazing amount of unionizing that's happening 
among people who were, you know, some of the uh, greatest essential workers during uh, the, the the worst part of the pandemic, um, and uh, and they're organizing uh, at a really rapid pace, uh, nurses, but also other people who work at hospitals and in healthcare companies. So. Um, so that's that's kind of what they're missing. That's not and maybe as well known as a brand name, um, and maybe it doesn't sound as as interesting to the readers of of the, of the Times or other mainstream uh, news media. But it's certainly a lot of people. So um, and it's actually surpassing, you know, what's happening um, on the you know the Starbucks side, for example. That's really interesting, Chris. Um, can you give us an idea of some of the other sectors where you're seeing a lot of organizing aside from healthcare? Yeah, in, in that article, I talk about, you know, you know, certainly the biggest one is healthcare, but there's other places that are kind of, um, you know, maybe off the beaten path for people who read the Times. So I, I talked about in the piece, there's, um, you know, 725 production and maintenance employees that work for Bobcat. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen those, but they're kind of small utility vehicles uh, um, and uh, um, that are used, uh, you know, for building and, and things like that. Um, 725 people in Bismarck, North Dakota at the Bobcat factory. Um, that's a place that's kind of like off the beaten path, um, particularly if you're thinking about places where you might expect people to be unionizing. North Dakota might be one of the places that's not high on your list, but that's pretty impressive. And I think that's a really neat story. Um, 238 workers at the Red Wing Shoe Company in Potosi, uh, Missouri. Uh, 170 workers at the Conag ConAgra Brands in St. Elmo, Illinois, where they make uh, salad dressings uh, and log cabin pancake syrup. And then, and this one was kind of unusual, 18 zookeepers at the Rolling Hills Zoo in Salina, Kansas. So those are not places that people um, <laughs> would normally be thinking about, uh, particularly you know, New York Times readers, but that's exactly why New York Times readers should be hearing about this sort of thing, that it's not just happening in, in larger cities and in me big metro areas, but in small places all around the country. In fact, we should, that news is good and we should be encouraging people uh, with, you know, by having news of, uh, about places that are normally thought as, as being, you know, anti-union uh, red states or red communities. And, you know, there's real organizing happening in there. So, so that's, that's the thing I'm interested in, um, in, in this and why I was talking about it, that these are places that are, that are kind of uh, um, exciting places where unionizing is happening. I'm kind of excited to hear about, or rather surprised to hear about Red Wing. Um, Red Wing is supposed to be a big union company. In fact, when people look at their list of union products, Red Wing is always up there pretty high. Yeah. Yeah. along with Danner Boots that's made here in the Pacific Northwest. So um, how, how are these people just now organizing? <laughs> that's a good question. I don't exactly know the answer to that question. You're right. I mean, Red Wing is usually that. But, it, you know, I'm not sure how long this facility has been in Missouri, but, it, you know, it might be that that, that had moved to a uh, you know, maybe that moved to a place that was less expensive in terms, uh, uh, but now they're organizing again. That's, that's, that's just my kind of guess, but it might be that. Cause I didn't know that. I actually thought, think of Red Wing as Red Wing, uh, Minnesota right. and, and not Potosi, Missouri. So it might be that that's the case there. Well, and that is one of the wonderful features of U.S. labor law, right? You can't just organize a company. You have to organize each individual shop. So <laughs> If a company moves production to an area that maybe doesn't have the same union density, I'm sure that's not why that would happen. Yeah. Uh, then they have to organize again, right? Yeah, Judy. Yeah. 
Yeah, Missouri used to be a center of the shoe industry in the United States, oh. and it got killed by NAFTA. Um, I remember doing a study about 20 years ago about the, uh, the number of, of plant shutdowns we had, um, and it, a lot of them were shoe companies. So they essentially de-unionized, and they just got rid of, you know, they de-industrialized the shoe industry in Missouri. So I... I don't remember there being a Red Wing plant here before. I could be wrong. So it may be uh, some kind of transplant runaway from Minnesota, who knows. But anyway, um, I just wanted to say, first off, Chris, uh, the zookeepers in Salina, Kansas, do you have a contact? Um, I want that story. I don't, <laughs> I, I, can get, I can get one for you. Yeah, that'd be great. Do you know what union? I'm, I'm trying to think who would have jurisdiction. Um, I don't have that one in front of me right now. I'll go back and look that up. For yeah, you. okay. It might be asked me if they're public, but Te uh, Teamsters always claim that they have everybody from uh, aerospace or zookeepers. Maybe it's the Teamsters. Could be the Teamsters. Yeah. <laughs> or true. SEIU. SEIU anyway, is all think, about the public. Yeah. Yeah. I or think you, that can make a good radio story. But anyway, um, the, the other thing I wanted to say is that Chris has been on before. And uh, it was after he wrote his book called, Tell, refresh me the title, Chris. Uh, the most recent one is called No, no Longer Newsworthy. Yeah. Uh, the mainstream media abandoned the working class. Right. And it's really, I mean, I, I think that book is, is it, it really changed my view of, of the media and understanding the media business. Um, and it was very unique and, and creative in the way he went about showing the abandonment of labor coverage by the mainstream media. And uh, I've just found it useful in talking to people about why they need to have a media strategy. So I recommend it. Yeah, I appreciate that. It, it's actually, I mean, it is, since that book came out in 2019, it is ticking up a bit, um, not so much in the mainstream media, but in, uh, in digital media. So not the legacy media, I guess, but digital media. Um, and so there's, there's a, you know, Huffington Post uh, would be, HuffPost would be a place um, uh, that would have, uh, you know, that, uh, labor reporters where they didn't have before. Um, uh, so, so that's, that's a really exciting thing. Um, uh, that's, uh, vice is another one. Um, that's an exciting thing that's been happening. Um, and in fact, I counted and I think we're up to, you know, there, there, I have around 50 labor reporters across the United States. Um, not all of them at legacy media. And I'd actually like to publish that soon just to kind of get that That'd out. Be good to know. But, uh, but yeah, so there, 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 a lot of them are at smaller and more recent places, or there's people who are more regional, but there, there are labor reporters out there, which is good. Yeah, Chris. No, I just wonder if you could share that list with us. I mean, I, I, I for example, know the labor reporters here in the DC area, um, which as you're saying, you know, even just a few years ago, it had pretty much, you know, completely vanished. And now there's a whole new generation, uh, uh, honestly, of, of uh, young reporters in their 20s uh, who are covering labor. Um, and we're just really, as a network, we really want to connect with those folks. Some of those folks actually are, are already sort of crossing over with the labor radio podcast world, uh, but we have a natural affinity. So we'd really like to, I mean, if nothing else, we'd like to have them on to, so that we can meet them and, and get, you know, share stories and so forth. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, 
I'll, uh, and I would actually like to run before I publish it, I'd like to run that list by you to say, just to make sure I'm not missing anyone because I, absolutely you know, there, there are people that I don't know. I don't know everyone. And so I've been trying to track it. Um, and I, I think it's useful to track it too, just to know where we are. Um, you know, back in, in the 1950s, there was one meeting um, with, uh, with the Neiman uh, folks uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and they counted, you know, at least, uh, you know, 26 or so union people between, you know, Cambridge, Massachusetts and the Mississippi at that time, um, which was a lot more per capita um, at that time than we have now. But uh, it'd be nice to actually have a count of where we're at right now in 2022. Patrick, you had something that you wanted to add. Oh, it was a shameless plug, but in this September's issue of Labour Studies in Working Class History, we have a feature behind the new Labour journalism, uh, which has short essays by Michelle Chen, Louis Felice Leon, Dave Jameson, and Kim Kelly, um, all of whom you know, but we're on the subject. Yeah, thank you. That's, that's actually a really nice uh, roundup of people uh, writing there. Um, you know, it's exciting that they're, um, in, in addition to just people with media organizations that we have, you know, a number of people who are freelancers, um, like some you just mentioned, like Kim Kelly, uh, Sarah Jaffe, Michelle Chen, uh, Mike Elk, uh, um, just mentioned uh, uh, you know, Joe uh, Manisalco. Um, so that there's a lot of people who are doing it at freelance and actually making a living doing that, which is, which is good news actually for people who wanna be reading news about labor. Well, you know, it's interesting because uh, there's been a lot of talk about how labor journalism has disappeared, and now we're seeing this upsurge, and I can only assume that that upsurge is in response to demand. More and more of the readers of these publications want to hear these stories, and so there is a space for these journalists to get those stories out. And I think those stories, I mean, really tell the story of our economy right now. Um, you know, even before, I mean, you can go back, you know, um, into, um, you know, the uh, the Great Recession in 2007, 2008, um, uh, you know, people who are protesting uh, in New York City. Uh, and now, um, you know, the, the incredible um, things that have happened uh, through the pandemic and, and the great resignation. I mean, it, it, that everything about that is is about you know what's happening in terms of of people who are, who are uh, dissatisfied with work and want to change work and are seeing labor unions as as really the the way to do that. Um, so it's nice to nice to see that happening. Yeah, it's funny. I was talking to somebody just yesterday about this great resignation notion. And in a lot of ways, what we're in the midst of is a great reassessment as everybody <laughs> is looking at their lives and thinking, do I really want to stay in this position that I've been in? Do I need to do something better for my family, for my mental health? I can certainly attest to that. I'm moving to a new city to be closer to my family. And there's a lot of people who are taking that time to think about the way life should be, I think that's reflected in all this organizing that you're talking about in your piece. So really excited to see you come on some of our network shows and talk a little bit more about that. Tim, Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really looking forward to getting the word out on some of our over 160 shows on the Labor Radio Podcast Network, which is kind of a crazy number when you think about it. <laughs> Judy, you had something. Um, well, yeah. Uh, so I just wanted to make a comment about, you know, Chris's article. Um, 
the bias of reporting Starbucks, Amazon, blah, blah, uh, I think reflects a lot more than just, you know, these are national firms and, and they're kind of, you know, like chic. I think it refer, I think it really reflects a kind of a class bias um, and an assumption right now that, oh yeah, the people who are organizing are college educated, downwardly mobile, downward, downwardly mobile, college educated youth who are disappointed that the economy isn't delivering for them. And so that's why they're organizing. And I think it that then misses the whole point about you know, the other reasons which Chris makes in his article, the point he makes in his article that there are so many reasons why people are organizing. And in fact, the labor movement is primarily kind of a blue collar movement, uh, a movement of people who don't have the privilege of college education, and yet they stand up for their rights. And I think it's really important for us to keep saying that so that we don't get this image of the working class that it's just these dumbed down people who take it, but they actually do stand up. And it, you know, I mean, that's, that's just the, the feeling I got when I read Chris's article that there's a, an implicit bias here, uh, not just towards the fancy companies, but it's a class bias. I, I don't know what other people think. Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna counter that just a little bit, Judy, because okay. I think to a lot of people, the labor movement has been a blue collar movement for years and years and years. That is the image that they have in their minds. And one of the things that I think is igniting a lot of attention about this new wave of organizing is the fact that these are sectors of people who don't fit that model, who actually are college educated and then they got out into the workforce and realized their college degree wasn't helping them any and so they're coming together and organizing Uh now i'm not going to counter the idea that there's a bias towards that i think we need equal coverage between that and the woodworkers in kelso washington who you know have always been unionized and are standing up for their rights but uh it it there's two stories to tell there and they're related, but I don't think they're mutually exclusive. Right. Yeah. Patrick. I mean, I find it complicated at times when I see like the, I don't know, the Harvard grad doctoral students, you know, who are members of the United Auto Workers sort of, you know, prancing around Harvard Yard saying we're auto workers, we're auto workers and thinking, well, you know, well, haven't you got it set up when you, you know, when you graduate, like it might be, like I've been a graduate student, but so I feel a little conflicted at times. Chris, I, yeah. Oh, and I, I think, yeah, I think that you know there is a a general upsurge which uh, is going to grow. It's growing not just here in, in Britain, around the world. Uh, the inflation, the COVID. I mean, one of the things talking to their airline workers yesterday is just anger about how they've been treated. Uh, you know, they, they, they went to work during the COVID pandemic, you know, they've been, you know, the stress, the, I mean, the conditions in the airlines and in the industry, and then to be kicked in, kicked in the ass by the uh, company uh, when they're making big profits. You know, one of the workers said, service workers, you know, uh, they're charging $20 for a hamburger at SFO, and they, may, they make less than that, you know, $17 an hour. Yeah. I mean, this is like the contradiction. 
between their, their what's happening to them, their conditions, and, and then the profits that are being made now that's driving them, really, they're getting angry. The working class as a whole is getting angry, and the railroad workers, uh, they're fed up, I mean, with their working conditions. I mean, they're stressed out. I mean, terrible conditions. They can't, I mean, people died because they don't go to a doctor because they get penalized on the job. I mean, their work conditions and the way workers are treated is leading to a major explosion of anger. They're fed up and they're not going to put up with it. And if that, that goes on with millions of people, we're going to have very radical labor conditions, which I think we're on the cusp of. So, um, folks, keep on doing great stuff. And we'll look forward to seeing you next week. That's it for this Pod Extra edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, produced and edited by me, Chris Garlick, and our social media guru, as always, is none other than Mr. Harold Phillips. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Labor Radio Net. Find out more on our website, laborradionetwork.org. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local labor radio podcast show.